I must say I'm enjoying the banter on Twitter between defaced Picasso Setu as well as Sizwe Bey, the real Sizwe Bey. I will engage your thoughts a little while from now, but Mr. TK Boy, who is the senior lecturer in the School of Governance at the Northwest University, is now in conversation of and about the United Nations and Africa 75 years on. Ms. Mbalinduli leads that conversation. Good evening, everybody. Welcome to African Narrative. Mbali? Good evening. Mbali, you're on. Oh, I beg your pardon. We seem to have lost somebody there. But nonetheless, as we celebrated the 75th anniversary last week of the United Nations, Secretary General Antonio Guterres, who took over from Ban Ki-moon, who took over from, well, of course, we should know who he took over from, Ndadegofi Annan, emphasized the importance of multilateralism in the midst of the pandemic. Whilst the continent has made progress by making appearances and leadership, the continent still struggles with humanitarian health care and leadership. Many other things that we struggle with. Good evening. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, sir. 75 years on, Africa at the United Nations. What is the one thing, and we'll get on to others, that we have surely gotten right, or the UN has served and has served Africa well over the three quarters of a century so far? The one thing I think I would do is, it probably has to be in the area of, uh, I think, discussions leading and during conflicts. Now, I know people might say that they're not successful, but the point is to say, in academia, if you look at the, I'll look at the last 20 years, look at places like the DRC and others, this has played quite a pivotal role in actually getting parties to the table. Now, where many people might also argue that, listen, sometimes uh, they don't go deeper, but you have to first understand what the United Nations is set up as being. You know, it's, uh, it's actually almost like an impossible task because you're trying to having a, a, uh, almost like a world parliament but we, there's a firm understanding that there's no equality at this world parliament, as seen by the fact that there are those uh, permanent members who've got permanent power. But one thing I think on the continent, most if you go, I think if you speak to most analysts, they'll tell you that, listen, you have to sort of give them credit for the fact that they do try getting during conflicts. Now, whether it's late in the case of Rwanda and other places, but the point is to try. We're going to get you to get onto another line, please, um, Mr. TK Boy, because we're struggling on this side. But you've mentioned the fact that as a win so far, and I'm interested in the thoughts of those who are listening in this conversation, hashtag African Narrative on SAFM with me, Songers on my bagel, together with Mr. TK Boy. Mbali Duli is part of this conversation, and she will join us very briefly. How the United Nations vis-a-vis Africa has handled conflict, mentioning Rwanda. And I would also mention, perhaps, let's have a conversation about real live discussions on Libya, on Tunisia, on on Egypt, on many other African countries where perhaps democracy has not always been delivered the way it has been promised. What has the United Nations, in your view, sitting at home, done for the good, for the bad, for the African continent? Of course, San Francisco, 1945, the UN Charter was concluded following the conclusion, to that extent anyway, of World War II. Of course, this was a precursor for what would become the Cold War, which would last another half a century. Your thoughts, Africa, United Nations. Do we need to strengthen in the African Union and altogether pull away from the United Nations. What has it done for Africa that you are proud of? Of course, you can also tell us what it has not done or what it continues to do that continues to disservice the interests of the continent. And Bali, I'm interested in your thoughts primarily at this stage. Bali, you there? I'm not entirely sure 
or is what the African Union is doing, because I think we see so many of the problems that Africa has been saddled with. And I'm not always as highly sure the United Nations or the Security Council is going to provide us with the solutions that we need. I'm incredibly interested in the fact that we have this pan-Africanist notion that we all seem to subscribe to as uh, you know, individual African countries and we sign up for, and yet nothing comes from that. And we're just scared of even talking to each other or condemning each other when we have things like when Uganda decided that it wanted to kill people that were homosexual. And South Africa, which has a very liberal constitution that allows that, couldn't say anything about that officially as a country. And I wonder where the sovereignty lies of each of these nations and where the humanity lies of us. Because to me, as somebody who obviously isn't in government and maybe is not or say with some of the issues that you know, may uh, influence some of these decisions. I can't understand why, as Africa, we mm. can't join together and have these conversations, especially because we call each other brothers and sisters, especially because you know we come from the same colonial past. For me, it's a, it's a real no-brainer, but it's going to take a lot. And I'm very interested to hear what the professor has to say about why we just are not making movements in that regard. Yeah, sure. I think holding each other into account has perhaps Mm. been one of those things that we as a continent are not particularly proud of. The fact that so many dictators have lasted for as long as they have, pretty much taking their people into abject poverty, get rid of one dictator, and so another takes over. From there, it becomes family dynasties. Your thoughts on that, uh, Dr. T.K. Bowe, senior lecturer in the School of Governance, Northwest University. We're talking about the African, well, African, con- African countries at the United Nations 75 years on. Doc? Uh, yes, uh, I think I just caught the tail end of it, but I, I think you're right in saying that there's also a question which has to be brought to the fore, if I got it correctly, the, the issue of self-agency of these countries, the fact that, look, we don't hear the United Nations going into places like your, the EU. Usually the EU is very quick at sorting out their own issues, which then raises the issue to say, listen, why has the African Union been very weak, or its predecessor, the OAU, why have they been pre- very weak at actually sorting out internal issues? I, I think the start has been made, but we also have to also understand the complexity of the continent when it comes to, you know, what what's termed, for lack of a better word, uh, the third force, which is external influences. And this goes back to maybe one of the weakest points of the United Nations, when, which was during the Cold War. We actually saw a lot of external Plays, namely the United Nations and the Soviet Union, play an overly strong, an overly strong position in the, in the continent, and this has actually continued on. If you look at a lot of countries, I think the, the most prominent one that comes to mind is the DRC. When you look at the, you know, the, the assassination of its uh, president, uh, former President Lumumba, how the fact that the United Nations through its CIA was so easily able to mm-hmm. get rid of a government under this person and this has actually continued on and the united nation has not really been strong at, at eradicating this the influence of non-african countries it's mainly because we also have to look at who actually funds the united nations because they actually tend to be quite weak if i'm not mistaken by last count one of the largest funders of the united uh, nations is the, it's the u.s followed by a lot of eu countries and this really just does show you some of the weaknesses of the united nations on the continent of africa you know speaking about that multilateralism, at least the prophecy behind it or the philosophy behind it, would be good in holding each other to account in terms of the big brother or big sister for us to use neutral terms. Having said that, it hasn't proven particularly effective. 
given the fact that the CIA or America or all these interests to which you refer to have always been able to penetrate for the bad in the final analysis, the African continent, using at times Africans as agents. I mean, look what happened to Thomas Sankara and Blaise Campara, the idiot. Now, how do we overcome that? Is this not a good time then perhaps to look more inwardly as opposed to outwardly? Because this is the global trajectory right now. Everybody is looking to oneself, familiar spaces, the closer you are, the better, simply because of the control and of national sovereignty-related issues and questions. Uh, should I take that? Yes, please. Yes, I actually wrote an article, uh, I think it was a few months before President Donald Trump came into into his presidential team in the U.S., and actually you said the same thing, to say, I know a lot of people are going to say, listen, this is a man who's going to basically cut off a lot of aid to Africa, but maybe that, that it's wrong to say, and I think it's quite uh, controversial, I'll take the, the feet, uh, the bite back from this, to say that, listen, for too long African states have so relied on Western states for things such as aid, and just your, your basic how to do things. And what Donald Trump has really shown us is, is we're actually very weak at an international level. And like you say, the only way to actually remedy your international position is to actually have a strong home position. And if you look at the African continent, and this includes South Africa as well, because I think we should not be exceptional in our viewpoint, Mm. we're very weak internationally. If I have to take a case in point, if you look at what happened in Libya, the African Union eventually came to a position of saying, listen, you cannot simply just come into the territory of an African country and get rid of Muammar Gaddafi, whether you think what he's doing is right or wrong. That position was simply ignored by the EU in the form of France and also the United States of Barack Obama, which we should not forget. And that really just showed the point that even when we make a decision as African states, we have no power to actually rely on our agency. And I think the best place is to look for where a model of development is actually look at Asian countries. When Asian countries, whether it's India with Kashmir, or whether it's China, with whatever you want to pick with China, when they say no, they might not have the full power to stop America from doing what they want. But at least the United Nations and maybe other countries in the EU and the US, they're forced to at least make a strategic take a strategic point of how are we going to get around the no of these countries and I think the fact that we don't have a position of economic strength and the fact that our states are so are so weak means that we're forever going to be going to places such as the United Nations not as as you know firm players like you said the, the, the ideology is correct to say we should all come to the table uh, as equal states but the reality of it is that's not it and I think the only way you're saying is to actually look internally there is no outside help that's going to make us any better as African states if we don't look to ourselves for help. Is it truly a, a case of economic weakness or economic fragmentation? Because you think of the world's resources, natural, underground, think of a resource. There isn't anywhere between mm. Cairo and Cape Town where you do not find it. We've got the youngest population. We Which cut should across. Be the well, we certainly should be the richest. We are in the northern hemisphere. We're in the southern hemisphere. We've got perfect weather. We've got rain. Well, what then allows Africa to still be the wooden spoonists, if you like? What is it about our leadership that doesn't allow us to get there, Dr. T.K. Bo? actually been one of the things I've, I've always argued against. If I to, I'm going to do it, take it in the African way to, to answer a question with, an, with a question, to say, what does Switzerland have that, the African, that any African country doesn't have? Nothing. Nothing, right? But what, what I think this is then pointing to an issue, it's the human, ca- it's the human capacity, that, that issue of human capabilities, right? That's what separates, the, for the longest time, if you, if you ask people about the African narrative and development, people will go on about its resources, but we never go on about its people. 
we never go on about our ingenuity and the need the fact that listen yes we've got a young population but what are we teaching this young population i'm sorry to say that a lot of times and look universities i think maybe we're guilty of this is we're basically teaching people to be to simply say listen you need to go look for a job how are you going to find a job within the continent well you need a multinational you can name any name think about it and i'm sure we all have names in our mind and that's how we go but we've never actually said listen what what is a 20-year trajectory of the continent for, for us to actually get better? Well, what we do know, and this is not an opinion, this is just empirical fact when you look at how other countries have developed, is you need a critical mass of elites. And this is where Africa has been very, because our elites are, are the worst kind of elites. It's people who simply look for the stomach, which is to say, can I get a contract here? Can I get a contract there? And if I have this contract, then I include you in the contract. And that's, I think, where we have been weak. Now, this is not to say other countries don't have this issue, but I always say that the issue, the issue is not to say that there's corruption in the United, in the United States. The issue is to say, how are we going to be better than that? And I think we've always had the problem in answering this question, which says, how do we move beyond just looking at our resources? Because if we don't look at things like our education level, and when I'm saying education, it's not simply that I'm putting you through school so that you go to university. It's, it's an issue of saying, as when you graduate at the level of matric or grade 12, I think is, is what they call it now, are, are you able to say you're getting a skill from this? Because education is not simply supposed to be on paper. It's supposed to be able to say, does it equip you that when you go out into this world, you can spot opportunity? And I think if you look at our curriculums across the continent, we're still stuck in the old way of thinking of, let's get you to matrix so that you can go to varsity. There's nothing wrong with varsity. But what we should be saying is, how do I get you at the point of grade 12 to be able to actually be able to spot opportunity, economic opportunity. And the reason, I, this is my personal view, the reason I harp on about economic opportunity is when you look at Asian countries, Asian countries did not come to the table and say, listen, we want you to treat us as equal political partners and this is ideology. They didn't do that. They simply said, the way to actually get to this table and to compete as an equal player is to come with an economic plan. And I think African countries are very weak at that. For, uh, for instance, and I'm just going to maybe wrap it up here so that I don't take too much of your time. If you look at how we in South Africa conceptualize economic development, I, I find it a bit, a, bit it's a bit perturbing that we still think of South Africa only. What, South Africa is not going to do well unless Swaziland and Lesotho are part of our economic plan going forward. And when we're actually able to say, listen, why is it that till now that our government is not speaking to the governments of Lesotho and Swaziland to say, listen, when we speak about higher education and the need for engineering, because those are the skills we need at the moment, engineering and commerce, we will give you funding if you allow South African students to also come in there. So what we do is we're taking our funding, we're helping Swaziland and Lesotho get better. And when we make our other African countries get better around us, then we can start speaking about proper regionalism. But I'm not saying it must be macro, because sometimes you just say, hey, let's make Africa all one thing. That's not going to work. We need to start small. Mm. And uh, when we start small, with uh, look, it's going to be a boring plan. I know people don't like long-term plans, because we've been abused by having to hear things like 20, 30, things are going to get better. I get why people are pessimistic. But until we actually have proper plans, which, uh, can, which you and I can see as bread and butter issues for the next 10 years, and say, this is what we're doing, this is how it's going to work. We're not going to get anywhere. So this is where then, if you can do that, you get rid of the need for, play, for institutions like the United Nations.
but, but because we don't have we can, we have not been able to think of plans for ourselves and think of developing the human being not not the resources around us let's leave it there doc let's leave it there we are running out of time i was hoping you'd actually wrap it up when you said you would we appreciate your thoughts on this it simply means you have to return because you clearly have a lot to say we appreciate the fact that you honored our time especially on the short notice that you had dr tk boy university of the northwest senior lecturer school of governance your thoughts on that Mbali? you were listening this these are some of the things you might have to think of one day if your own visions and prophecies come to being I think about them often, um, and I really would like to engage with us afterwards. Unfortunately, I was losing connection with him a little bit there, but I think suffice to say is that nobody believes that Africa is where it should be. We are incredibly resource-rich, and I disagree with the doc from what I did share about the human capital of us. I think we have incredible human capital. We definitely are the youngest continent, and there is definitely a way for leadership that is visionary to be able to exploit that to the best ability for our entire continent. And I think that we need to have leaders that are willing to have those conversations and are willing to be truthful and honest with each other. Perhaps because the last uh, contingents of them have been post-colonial leadership, they haven't been able to do so. But I'm hoping that there are people like myself, like you, in the other continents, um, in, in the other countries that I've at least met, who are going to be able to do those conversations. And I look forward to that because I think that Africa... Um, is definitely the jewel of the world and deserves to be once again restored to the place that it originally was, which we don't learn about in our history anymore, um, and that we should start doing so. Um, but I think we must engage the prof again. Um, we certainly shall engage the prof again, and we might give you some notice for the purposes of that discussion, in other words, carrying on. But I, I have been harassed here for the best part of an hour now in relation to this, and I want to ask you two questions. One ties into the other. Siswe, Seto, this is all about you. Great guest, Songhez. My problem is the DA, if you're a black leader and have vision to change or transform the party, you will be thrown away by those ex-senior members' influence, specifically Helen Ziller and Tony Leon. And I want to tie that question from our WhatsApp platform onto our Twitter page because defaced Picasso, his name is said to asks. White people, sorry, this is the question. Ask her if white people in the DA ever say, open quote, you're not like the others. The race question, your experience in the DA. Right. So I think for the first question, um, Tony Dion, as far as I'm aware, has almost no influence on the DA. You have one minute, by the way, said today, um, now. Sorry, Mbali, you have um, one think, minute. Sure. Helen's is still a very powerful character, but she's not the DA. And people that believe that she is, are mistaken, and the people that who you know follow her and um, believe that she's everything about the party are incorrect, and that's why people like myself can exist if you have alternative views to her. White people have never said that to me in the DA, but I think every single black person who might have gone to a model C school would have experienced that, but I don't think that's something that is exclusive to the DA, so I would disagree with that. But suffice to say, because what I think the questions are really asking is, does her experience racism? Of course, because in every organization in South Africa, given our party, you're going to find people that have not moved beyond where 94 got us to. But that is not anything that is different to anything else in our country, any organization, any shop, any uh, private company that you own in. And my duty, as far as I see it at the moment, is to try and get mediate to a place where it can move beyond that. And um, that's what I'm going to be trying to do as I run in my leadership race.
Fantastic. Balinduli, thank you so much for your time then. Balinduli. Thank you for having me. Excellent. Tuesday takeover number four. Naledi Chirwa, Mkule Gotlengwa, Tessa Dooms. Now, Balinduli, four. Many to go. 21.33. Of course, it's time for somebody to read you your favorite bedtime story. And it's not Cinderella.